we're in this conversation. And uh, quite frankly, we're just kind of jumping into some, some tough stuff. Here's the way I would say it. We're kind of walking down the hallway of our doubts, and we're opening up the doors of our questions. That's what we're doing. And so all we're doing is saying, hey, if we walk down this hallway of our doubts, what do I do with my doubts? What do I do if I got doubts and questions for God? And in a room this size, my guess would be that many of you have, or maybe you have them right now. So at one point in time in your life, you've had them, but maybe some of you are like, man, I got doubts now. And so the first week we were together, we just kind of tackled that, say, hey, what do I do with doubt? Is it bad? Is it good? Is it something that I can keep wrestling with? What, what do I do with my doubt? Last week, we opened up one of the doorways to one of the probably biggest hangups people have when it comes to Christianity and God, and that is the question of exclusivity. So we just tackled it. We said, what do we do with this question? And the question kind of goes like this. You mean to tell me there's only one way to God? You mean to tell me Christians really believe that, that there's only one way to God? And so we just kind of tackled that question. And if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go online, check that out. You can download the New Grace app and check that out. But uh, we tackled that question. We said the, the message of Christianity is exclusive, one way, but it is inclusive. All are invited. And it's the most unique religion. And then we just kind of tackled some of the oppositions to that. Next week, uh, give you a teaser, right? Next week, I think, is, is actually, I'm already working on next week, to be honest with you. I think it, it's maybe one of the tougher weeks. Uh, what do you do? Hell. Like, Dan, you mean to tell me there's really hell and people go there and God sends people there? Like, I can't get my head around that. So we're just going to talk about it. And we're going to just kind of honestly have that conversation. Uh, week after that, we're going to talk about hypocrisy. And you're like, what is that? And here's how that goes. Young adults in particular, you'll know this. Here's what I find with young adults. Young adults uh, predominantly are, are this way when it comes to spirituality. Yay, God! I don't know if I like the church. So they're like, I like God, and I'm all about God, the Bible, but the church kind of is wiggly for me. I'm not sure I get into it because they either have been hurt by it or they've read about how the church has hurt others. And so how do I navigate that? right? How do I honestly navigate that? Do I got to go to church? I just want to kind of worship God on a mountainside by a creek or something like that. And then last week, we're going to talk about authority. All of us have an authority in our life. For a Christian, a Christ follower, it's the Bible, which begs the question, well, how do I know I can trust the Bible? Isn't it just like other books? Uh, how do I read the Bible? How do I know the translation I have is okay? And so we're going to just talk about that and kind of wrestle with it. Today, today I want to talk about a, a really, really big question. By the way, can I just say this? Look here a second. I just want to I don't know, I didn't do this to the other services. I love you guys. Like, I, I want you to know something, that I love what I get to do. I love that I get to come in here and hang out with you guys every week. And I love the fact that here at Grace Church, we can have conversations like this. And I would say this, if you're here and you're like, I don't know that I agree with everything you're saying, I say this almost every week, it's okay. You can come here and not agree with everything I'm saying, Okay. But I love the fact that we can just have honest, real conversations. And so today, here's where I want to take you. I want to open the door and walk through this question, the question of evil and suffering. Here's the way the question rolls out. The question goes like this. If God is all-powerful and he's good, then why in the world is there so much evil and suffering in the world? It's a good question. It's a fair question, right? If God's all-powerful and he's good, then why in the world is there so much evil? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why doesn't he show up and do something? Now, here's, here's the deal. I don't need to make a case for this, right? I really don't, because you know there's evil and suffering in the world. You already know that. Uh, some of you know it by personal observation. You just watch the news, right? And so you turn on the news, and you're like, wow, there it is, right? You see it play out. 
you see the natural catastrophes. You're like, wow, you know, the, the hurricanes down south, the earthquake in Mexico. I mean, you watch this thing happen, and you're like, there's suffering all over the place. Some of you watch this, and you see crime and terrorism. You see disease, and we're trying to find answers to cancer that just ravages people's life, Alzheimer's, all kinds of things. You see this play out by personal observation, and so I don't need to make the point. You just got to turn on your TV. Here's what I know. Others of you don't know it by personal observation alone, ready? But you know it by personal experience. Some of you are, that, that's your story right now. That, that's what you're navigating this moment. Like, you are the one sitting here, you're like, yep, I got the diagnosis. And they told me my life wouldn't be the same. You're the one sitting here today and you're like, no, no, you don't understand. I didn't watch this thing play out on the news. I am the victim of the crime. Some of you are like, no, no, I didn't hear about somebody betraying somebody else. You're like, no, no, I'm the one who was betrayed in the relationship. Some of you are sitting here is like, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not, I don't have to go turn on a, a, a TV show to get the idea of extreme loss. Like, I'm going through loss that is really, really final right now. And so you would say, you know, it's not just a personal observation for me. It's a personal experience. Whether it's personal observation, whether it's personal experience, here's what I know about suffering it's raw and it's real. And pain, suffering, and the results of evil are so raw and so real, listen close, so absolute that it creates within most people a visceral reaction. Like this reaction takes place and most of the time, not all the time, most of the time it is somehow targeted to God. In fact, for some of us in this room or people we know, right, or people we know, it's this very question that becomes the proverbial nail in the coffin that seals the deal. Like, this is the question. This is the reason some people write God off altogether. There cannot be a God because there's evil and suffering. And for others, it's the very thing that causes them to walk away from God because they grew up worshiping God and then the realities of life, and it's like, you know something, that God Mabel told me about in Sunday school, I'm not sure how to make that work with what I see. So we're going to wrestle with that for the next 30 minutes. So I'm going to take you some places. I want to have this conversation. We're going to go down deep, come up high. But let's state the question, okay? So you ought to fill in your blanks. I don't usually put this big of a statement on your outlines, but this, this morning I did because we had to. Here's the question stated. Ready? Ready? If God allows suffering to continue because he can't stop it, here's the logical conclusion. He might be good, but he's not all-powerful. So if the suffering in the world continues because he can't stop it, we could sit back and say, he's a good God. He just isn't all-powerful. Goes on to say, if God allows suffering to continue because he won't, then he must be all-powerful, but he certainly isn't good. It lends itself to this conclusion. Either way, the good and all-powerful God of the Bible does not exist. We'll leave that up there for a minute for you to fill in the blanks. But think about it. All this is saying is this, that if God is good and all-powerful, he either would and he could stop the suffering and evil, but because he won't, maybe he can't, and maybe he doesn't exist. That's how that reasoning goes. It is this line of reasoning that turns people off from God. It's like, Man, if he can, why doesn't he? And if he can't, maybe he's not who he says he is. 
So therefore, it lends me to say, maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe there is no God. It's this line of reasoning that caused some, and maybe you, maybe you, okay, maybe you're here today, some of us to write God off and others of us to walk away from God. And if that is you, let me just talk a minute to you. I'm really glad you're here. I mean that. Like, like if this is what you're wrestling with, I'm glad you're here. My goal today, my goal today is not to twist your arm, make you feel bad about being there, but is to maybe cause you to think about your visceral reaction to God in an intelligent, honest way, if we could just have an intelligent, honest conversation. So here's what I want to do this morning, and then then let's just jump right in. I want to reverse what I did last week. Last week, I said, okay, we got to first know, well, what does the message of Christianity say? And then we talked about the opposition to it. This morning, here's what I want to do. I want to say, okay, if I write God off altogether, if there is no God, there's still suffering and evil. So let's talk about the conclusions that lends me, leads me to, okay? And then I want to talk about, okay, well, the, if there is a God, how in the world do I make sense of suffering and evil in light of the fact there is a God? Make sense? That's where I want to go this morning. So you got to stay with me. This first part is so important. If you're here struggling, I want you to, to lean in. If you have friends that are struggling with this issue, and, and, and it's an honest question, I want you to lean in. Maybe this will help you in your conversation. Here's where I want to start. I'm going to start with a statement. This is a statement of opinion. I'll tease it out. Start by writing this down. Getting rid of and giving up on God, quite frankly, doesn't help. Now, whether you agree with me or not, that's the statement I'm making to start this off. Walking away from God or writing him off altogether simply does not help. Let's set the base for this. Okay, ready? This problem of suffering and evil is not a problem just for Christianity. Right? That just makes logical sense. It's a problem for all religions. All religions have to wrestle with this problem of, of suffering and evil. All religions have to. Okay? Uh, all cultures have to. Not just a 21st century uh, modern thing that we wrestle with. They've been wrestling for, for years with this, right? So all religions have to wrestle with this whole question of suffering and evil. And religions provide different answers to it. Listen close. But I think, Ready? that this question of evil and suffering poses an even bigger question for people who've written God off altogether. I think this is a more complex, harder question for people who've written him off, walked away from him, or say he doesn't exist. In other words, I think this question of evil and suffering is a bigger problem if you're sitting here and you're like, I'm an atheist, no God, out of the equation. You're saying, okay, you're going to have to help me understand that, and I get it. But let me help you understand it by reading an article that Pastor Aiden sent to me. I so appreciate this. It's about a guy who was writing about his atheist friend. And here's what he says. He says, one of my atheist friends came to me with a question, and it's a good question. He says, how in the world can there be a God if he allows a child to die from cancer? Now look here a second. Let me see your eyes. Can we just all admit something? That's a good question. Shake your head if you agree with me. That's a good question. And if you don't think that's a good question, maybe you've never looked into the eyes of a child dying from cancer. I have. It's a fair question. And then he follows it up. He says, this is a good question, isn't it? To which the Christ follower, the Christian friend, said back to his atheist friend, well, that's a good question. I have a question for you. 
What comfort do you have to offer the dying child? Will you go to her bedside and look into her pained and frightened eyes and say, your suffering is just a random conjunction of time and chance? You are merely a random collection of molecules that form genes, and when you die, it'll all be for nothing. None of it matters anyways. There is no evil. Whatever it is, is. Your suffering is just a firing of neurons in your brain, which your fight or flight instinct has evolved to help you adapt to the challenge of life. But you, child, you have failed. You will not survive. Those more fit will live on, and your life is of no significance whatsoever. I would say I'm sorry to you, but that too is an illusion, nothing more than certain chemicals and electric signals converging in my brain. The strong survive, and it is good that the weak die. He goes on to say, of course, my atheist friend said he would never go to a child and say those things, but I said in response, but that's what you're telling me is ultimately true. You see, here's the point, and I'm going to race through this for the sake of time. But writing God off and walking away, getting rid of God and giving up on God really is of no help. And it actually creates more questions. Because when I sit back and look at unjust suffering and I see evil in the world, I have to ask myself if I've written God off, if I've walked away from God, if there is no God, then how in the world, stay with me on this, do I determine if suffering is unjust? What tells me that suffering is unjust? What tells me that something is evil and not good? If I'm sure something is unjust or evil, I assume there's this higher standard of just and good. Otherwise, when I see suffering and evil, I'm like, well, that's just the natural order of things. That's how survival of the fittest works. It's that very reasoning that led a, at one time, atheist who had written God off to become a Christ follower. His name happens to be C.S. Lewis. Look at what he says. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? Look what he says. A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what a straight line is. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice, but saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if that, I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world really was unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Look what he says. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. You see, when I write God off, when he's not in, how in the world do I look at something? I don't even know who to be mad at. I'm not even sure how to evaluate it as unjust. I'm not even sure that it's a result of evil unless I have some sort of standard of what is just and what is good. And then I would simply say this. Some people write God off because they look at suffering and, and, and they look at pain and they, look the res- and they said it's pointless. It's pointless, and so therefore it's random. Either God is random and cruel, or this pointless suffering is happening because there is no God. And it assumes something, and here's the problem with that line of reasoning. It assumes that if, if there's a point to it, I've got to be able to see it. If I can't see the point, then there must be no point to it. It makes me think of a guy, you can forget this, but I just want to give credit to where I read this. His name's Alvin Plantinga. 
he mentions this bug. I'd love to know how many have heard of it called the noceums. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of noceums. Put your hands down. Raise your hand if you've never heard of what I just said. This bug, okay, more of you than have heard of it. This bug is so little you can't see it, right? And, but, but yet it can do damage. When it bites, it's, it's like almost worse than a mosquito bite. I mean, it's, it's noceums. In fact, uh, we, I had a real live experience with this. We sent Pastor Aiden and a crew down to the Philippines. And, uh, or I, I don't know if it was the Bahamas. I can't remember where he went. But uh, he came back. And uh, it's like going on this missions trip, and it's like so cool. I was so anxious to hear about it. He taught some, some classes. But when he came back, it was in the summer, and he was wearing shorts, and his legs looked like pepperoni pizza. I mean, there was red dots all over them. And I'm like, dude, what happened? And as what he said to me, he said, man, Dan, he said, the noceums, they just ate me up. And I'm like, I'd never heard of them. I was with most of you in the room, like, the, the noceums did, and, and it looks like mosquito bites, and they ate you up. And so then I asked the next question, the natural question, right? I said, man, I've never heard of noceum bugs. I said, what do they look like? To which Aiden said, what? I don't know. I couldn't see them, is what he said, right? You see, here's the point, right? Some of you are like, you're that dumb then? Yeah, I, I'm like, what in the world? I don't even know, right? Here's the point. Stay with me on this, okay? Stay with me. Whether you agree or not, just stay with me on the logic. Let's go logic. If I invite my friend Mike to come to my house, stand on my back porch, I would be justified in saying to him, there's no elephant back here, right? Sure I would. You know how I'd be justified in that? There ain't no elephant in my back. At least the last time I looked, there's no elephant in my backyard. But would I be justified in standing on that same porch with Mike and saying, there are no fleas in my backyard anywhere? I wouldn't. Why? Because I have no idea. A flea is so small and my backyard is deep. I can't see what's out there. Here's the point. When it comes to this idea of evil and suffering, sometimes we write God off because we can't see the point. And the question is, should the reasons for evil and suffering be as obvious to me as an elephant? Or is it possible they might be as imperceptible to me as a noceum? Wherever I land on that, if I write God off, stay with me because some of us are there. If I write God off when it comes to evil and suffering, then what's the point of evil and suffering? In fact, this doesn't need to come from me. Some of you have heard the name Richard Dawkins. Raise your hand if you've heard the name Richard Dawkins. Famous atheist, wrote God Delusion. He said this in another book that he wrote. He said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you'll not find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any any justice. Look what he says. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. What's he saying? I mean, he embraces this. What's he saying? He's saying that we're just a bunch of DNA, and we just dance to the music of our DNA. What he's saying is, terrorists are nothing more than men and women who dance to their DNA. He's saying rapists, they're just dancing. To their DNA. You see, some of you are like, oh man, I don't know that I like that. 
Like I see this evil and suffering, and if there's no point, and there's no purpose, there's no origin, it's like, it's like, Dan, you kind of got me boxed in a corner. It's like writing God out of the equation doesn't help. It's like, in fact, it makes it worse. So if I got to add God back into the equation, it's like, oh, Dan, I don't know what to do. And some of you are like, if I got to add God back into this equation of evil and suffering, God, that's what you think. It makes me mad at God. Look here, look here. I'm glad. Because then we can have a conversation. Then we can have a conversation that might help us. And it makes me think of what Tim Keller said when he said, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at, because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, listen to this. Then you at the same moment have a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you cannot know. But you can't have it both ways. What's he saying? He's like, if I add God back into the equation because writing him off doesn't help, but it makes me mad because somehow he should stop it. He's so great. He's so transcendent. Step in and stop it if he's that great. If he's that transcendent, what if he doesn't just simply have the power, but what if he has a wisdom that I can't totally get my head around? What if he has a perception that I can't get my head around, a perspective I can't quite see that is so grand as well that it's beyond me understanding? So it begs this question. Okay, Dan, then if I'm going to write God back in the equation, then how in the world do I navigate suffering and evil in the world. I would write it this way. Going to the God of Christianity does help. By going to the God of the Bible, we may not walk away with all the reasons, but we will walk away with resources for navigating suffering, pain, and evil. By going to the God of the Bible, we don't get all the explanations, but I think we get the final answer. And what I love about the Bible is it's honest and real about suffering and evil and the results of evil in the world, which leads us to the book of John. Now, we've got to go somewhere and then John 11. But we've got to start in John 1. Don't turn there. I want to throw it on the screen because John 1 teaches us something that is foundational. Listen close. What I'm getting ready to share with you is foundational to you understanding the Bible, and it's foundational to the way you read the stories of Jesus. Apart from what I'm getting ready to share with you, the stories of Jesus won't pop and make sense, okay? Because John 11 comes after John 1, and John 1 is setting the stage for us. Look at what it says. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Say the next part out loud. And the Word was God. Who was God? The Word was who? You guys are good. He who, the word, was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Who's him? The word. Who was the word? God. So through God all things were made. God is the word. Without him, that's the word who was God. Nothing was made that has been made. Listen close. The word was God. The word made, he's the creator, made everything we see. Verse 14. The word, who's the word? God became flesh. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Listen, this is John's Christmas story. No shepherds, no wise men. This is John's Christmas story. 
The Word who made everything wrapped himself in skin. Here's what's foundational for us to understand the stories of Jesus. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God with skin on. I heard one writer put it this way. Jesus is God in a bod. That's how he put it, right? That's easy to remember. Jesus is the maker showing up in the manger. Jesus is the infinite becoming an infant. But Jesus is God. So you see Jesus, you see God. It will change the way you read the stories of Jesus. And in particular, it makes one of those stories exceptionally intriguing to me. And that's the story you have laid open in your lap. Because if Jesus is God, John 11 tells me something about God that's important for me to navigate this question of suffering and evil. You're like, what's the story in John 11? Well, some of you have heard it. And then there's some of you that haven't. So I want to tell it. And then I want to jump into it. The story of John 11 goes like this. Jesus had a couple friends. They had names. Martha, Mary, Lazarus. Two sisters and a brother. As the story fleshes out, it becomes very evident in the story. Jesus had a great relationship, deep friendship, loved them dearly. But Lazarus gets sick. In fact, the words they use is he's sick unto death. He's like seriously sick. The sisters do what you'd expect them. They're like, Jesus, the one you love, Lazarus, our brother, is sick. Help! When you read the story, it says Jesus heard... They're SOS for help. And so he stayed where he was at. That's a head scratcher. And then it says two days later, two days later he says to the disciples, hey, let's go to where Lazarus is at. I'm going to wake him up. They look at Jesus like, you want to go there because they were trying to kill you there. If we go there, they're going to kill you. What are you doing? He's like, you don't quite understand it, but we got to go there, wake up Lazarus. And he heads to where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are. He doesn't even get to the graveside. And Martha, I love her personality. She's a bit aggressive. She's tenacious. She goes out to meet Jesus. She's like, you know something? (laughs) You need to check your email. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you had been here, right? Like, this thing might have turned out different. Like, she, she's tenacious. She's aggressive. She's like, and Jesus looks at her and says, you know, Martha, he doesn't really like correct or rebuke her. He's like, you know, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. And she said, I know, I know, I know. I went to Sunday school. He's going to rise again on the last day. I get it. And he's like, you don't quite get what I'm saying. But she sends word back to her sister, and she's kind of spirited a little different than Martha. But she comes out, and she's like, you know, wow, Jesus is kind of tough, but she has the same question. A little different tone, probably. She's like, you know, I I don't really get it. Like, I think if you had been here, this could have turned out different. (laughs) Like, this is hard. And Jesus doesn't really say anything to her other than says, where have you laid, my friend? who's now dead. And Mary walks with him to the site of the grave where in there is Lazarus. And it says Mary's crying, those around are crying, and when you read the story, it says Jesus begins to cry. Fascinating picture. 
And then it says this, and we're going to talk about it. It says, Jesus became troubled in his spirit. We don't really get what that means because we read the stories of Jesus stoic. It's like, he, I'm troubled. But the word is like he woke up with anger that moves somebody to action. And he says, roll that stone away. He said, roll that stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come out. Now, I don't know if you're Jesus, you're like, man. If you're standing there like, man, if Lazarus doesn't come out, he's going to look foolish, right? Until all of a sudden you see the dead man walking out in his grave clothes. And you're like, whoa, what's the point of the story? We got to get this and then jump in. What's the point? Is the point Lazarus? Wow, yay, Lazarus rose from the dead. I need Jesus to show up like that. Is that the point? If you read it that way, you'll be disappointed with the stories of Jesus. Because you're like, man, I kind of need a Lazarus moment, right? I need that. That's not the point of the story. Can I tell you something? Shh, listen, secret. Lazarus dies again. He's not like walking around. He didn't raise him, and all of a sudden, he's forever and always healed. He's dead. <laughs> then why did he raise him from the dead? Like, if you've got to go through death once, why twice? It's as though Jesus wanted those around to know something. That the point isn't Lazarus. That was kind of cool. Everybody celebrated. But he wanted them to know, listen, if you had any doubt, I am exactly who I say I am. I am God in a bod. I am the maker who showed up in a manger and now I'm a man. I am God with skin on. And here's the deal. If Jesus is God, then that tells me, John 11 tells me something about God in the middle of suffering and evil. Four things. First is this, that if you and I choose to go to God, even in the middle of suffering and evil, I find a God who suffers with us. He suffers with us. This makes Christianity unique from all other religions that the God of Christianity enters into our pain, enters into our suffering. Look at how the story starts. This man named Lazarus, sick from Bethany, village of Mary, Martha, go down after the parentheses. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you say it out loud, love, is sick. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That is so powerful because this God who suffers with us, it's important for me to understand he enters into it and sometimes what can happen in the middle of suffering and evil and the results of evil that bring pain, I can ask the question, is God doing this because I've done something wrong? Does he not love me? John 11 tells me something important, that even those whom he loves suffer. Go through confusing situations. Have to wrestle with the loss of a loved one. But the story doesn't end there. This God who suffers with us, all throughout the story, he has people that are questioning him. The disciples look at him and say, why would you go back there? I wouldn't do it that way. You probably never have those conversations with God, do you? I have. He gets to Martha and she's like, you know something? <laughs> if you had showed up the way I said, when I said, and how I said, this thing could be different. You don't have those conversations, do you? I have. 
And what I find interesting about the God who suffers with us is not once do we see him correcting, rebuking, telling them, why in the world are you struggling with this? You don't get it. Because here's the God who suffers with us. This is worth writing down. He would rather, you ready? We wrestle with him in our pain and suffering than walk away from him. You see, this is why this is important. Because I have a new friend that I met with this last week, and I love him. And we sat and talked over nachos. And he shared his story, and it's full of pain, confusion, all kinds of personal pain, pain that his spouse is navigating, pain that is, that is leaning into his family. If I shared his story, you'd be like, whoa. I'm not, it's his story to share. But he said something to me that some of you can relate with. He said, Pastor Dan, I said, my name's not Pastor Dan, it's Dan. I said, just call me Dan. He said, Dan, I struggle because I feel guilty. I said, what do you feel guilty about? He said, I'm wrestling with this, I don't understand it. I'm struggling, I'm questioning, I'm, I'm frustrated. And he said, it makes me feel like I'm not a Christian. God, I shouldn't be wrestling with this. He says, so then I'm not sure I'm a Christian. So I got all this pain, and then I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I looked at my friend, and I said, you know, actually the fact that you're wrestling with it is encouraging to me. Because God would rather you wrestle with him in your pain than walk away from him. See, some of you need to hear that this morning because there's a God who suffers with us and I don't know, you don't know, why in the world is this? I don't get it. I can't put it together. I can't see how it's gonna end. I don't know where it came from, where it's going. So you're rational. It's like, is God mad? Now I don't even know if I'm part of his team. What's going on? And he's like, no, no, no. Like never once, never once he say, don't question me. Right? He doesn't do it. But then, powerful, look at what he says in verse 33. Jesus saw her weeping, Jews coming along weeping. He was deeply moved. We'll get back to that. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord. And then it says, Jesus, what? Wept. Who wept? Say it out loud. Jesus. And Jesus is the word, and the word is who? God. And Jesus is who? God. And so I want you to substitute the word God where it says Jesus. It says, God wept. We have a God who enters into our pain and suffers with us. And this is one of the most profound pictures of God in the Bible. God is crying. Where's God? He's crying. He's not uninvolved. He's not stoic. He's not detached. He's in it. He's crying. This makes Christianity unique from all the other religions. God in the middle of our pain, crying with us. God walking through the fire with us. God grieving with us in our pain. It makes Psalm 34 pop. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. It's interesting, isn't it? You see, it means that God is not only unique. He's unique from all other pictures and portraits of God. But it means God, listen close. Some of you need to hear this this morning. He's sympathetic. Might I even say empathetic. Look here a second. You ever talk to somebody who when you talk to them about your situation, you know they understand? Because they've walked through similar, right? Like you can talk to a thousand people about your battle with cancer. 
and then meet eyes with somebody who is battling cancer too, and you're like, oh, yeah. You mean, oh, yeah. And you almost finish each other's sentences. Did you? Yeah. What this means, guys, is we have a God who understands. It changes the way you pray because we have a God who suffers with us. Hebrews 4 says it this way. We have a high priest, entered heaven, son of God. Let's hold firmly to what we believe because Jesus, this high priest of ours, what? Understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings we do. Yeah, he didn't sin. So what do we do with that? God suffered with us. So we can come boldly to his throne, not out of arrogance. I'm cocky. Yo, I'm a Christian. I can bust into God's presence. We can come boldly because he understands, boldly because he empathizes, boldly because he sympathizes, boldly because we're looking in the eyes of a God, infinite God, who knows. He's gracious. And there you receive mercy and find grace to help when we need it most. It doesn't say that he changes all the situation, does it? I won't lie to you. I wish it did. It'd make my life and my job so much easier. But when I come into his presence in prayer, I have a God who's like, been there. I've lost a son. I've been treated unjustly. I had a life that was cut short. I know what it's like to be humiliated. I know what it's like to be betrayed. The story gets interesting, and I hear guys talk about John 11, and they skip this part, but I refuse to today because it's important for what we're talking about. This is literally what it says. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. The the way that's written is it's kind of like he heard he was sick, and so because he heard he was sick, he decided to stay where he was at. Come on, read that in color, not black and white. It's like, say what? Like, they're crying like, Jesus, who is God, by the way, we need you to show up. Like, he's sick, gonna die. Come now, rush, take the red eye, do whatever it takes. Jesus stayed where he was at. You ever have that experience? I have. It's like, God, kind of need you to like pop into this thing right now. There's things going on, right? Like, need you to do this and that and pretty much need it like, now. Like, I need you to show up right now. And you know what you get? Crickets. Like, what? Maybe he didn't hear me. Maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. What's going on? Look what it says the verses right before. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory. So that God's son may be glorified through it. What's the point here? Jesus sees something they don't see. And when I run to God in the middle of suffering and evil, I find God seeing beyond our suffering. Sees beyond our suffering. It's as though this is what is going on. I look to God and I'm like, God, do you see what's going on over here? Like, do you see what's happening here? And it's as though God says, I do, Dan. I see what's happening here There and everywhere, I see what you don't see. It makes me think of this incredible picture that C.S. Lewis draws. 
where he says, imagine a little child watching a parade through the knothole of a fence. He hears the sound of music and animals coming from one direction, but he can't see them yet. So he's got to guess what they are. He has the memory of the animals in the wagons that have already passed. It's a memory that's still vivid, but it's growing dimmer each moment. But at the present, he sees through the knothole a gymnast riding in an elephant as he watches the scene unfold through the knothole of his perspective. He will and can recall with some distortion the past, the things that have already gone. He knows nothing of what's coming, the future, but he can speak of what he presently sees through the knothole of the present. Lewis rightly points out, now imagine a God who can see at the top of the fence the past, the present, and the future with one sweeping glance. If that were the case, things which make no sense to the wide-eyed little child in each of us may make the whole thing work if we could see it from above. You see... He sees what I don't see. He sees beyond my suffering. But then the most significant thing in the story transpires. Jesus saw her weeping and others weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Verse 38, same word, deeply moved. Here's the deal. We read that and as I said before, we read Jesus kind of stoic in in the Bible. And it's like Jesus was deeply moved. And we have this picture of him. You know, I'm deeply moved. And that's not what's going on. The Greek word there is literally his nostrils snorted with anger. It's like, like an animal, right? That, 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 that an animal that's inhabitants or, or maybe it's, it, its family is being threatened and this animal is going to snort. And it's like, you're not going to attack what I care about. Guys, allow that picture to sink in because in this, if I'm reading this right, this is Jesus and he's weeping, but then he becomes angry. And if Jesus is God, God's mad. God is standing at the side of this grave and he's mad. Mad at who? Lazarus for dying? I don't think so. Mad at Mary and Martha? No. Mad at the disciples? I don't think. What's he mad at? I think God stands at the edge of that grave and he is mad at the results of evil in seeing how it threatens those he loves. And seeing the results ending in suffering and pain and the crying and he realizes this is not what I intended even though I've entered into it with you. And he's so mad because those he loves are threatened are threatened, and he is mad to the point that it moves him to action. What action does it move him to? In a couple chapters, if you read the book of John, it moves him to the action where he literally straps on his back a cross and endures the excruciating experience of the cross. What's happening there? When you and I run to God in the middle of suffering and evil, we don't just find a God suffering with us. We find a God who suffers for us. Like that's God suffering in our place for our sin. That's God enduring for us the suffering that each of us deserve. And when I look at the cross, it helps me navigate senseless suffering and pain because it tells me at least the reason for suffering and pain in the world 
cannot be that God doesn't care when I see God suffering for me. When I see through the lens of God suffering for me, I realize that Jesus was not just an example who suffered with me, but that he was a substitute. And it makes a verse pop. It's a verse I memorized as a little kid that some of you know. It never made sense to me. It's in Hebrews 12. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Get it? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I never got it because I never could figure out what was the joy. And I always thought to myself, well, he's going to grit through the cross because he knows it's going to come to an end. The other side's heaven. It's like, ooh, man, you're just going to kind of grit through, right? Like, so I always read it. That I was like, man, man, who for the joy set before him, he just said, I've got to knuckle down and do this. And then I kind of grew up and began reading, and I began, what is the joy? What's the joy? What's the joy that allowed him to endure the cross? You know what it was? You know what it was? You. And 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 you. See, the joy that was set before him that allowed him to endure the cross was you, was me, because he realized at that moment, I am enduring the suffering in your place so that you don't have to live the rest of your life and eternity apart from God, if you'll say yes to me. You see, when I see God suffering for me, I realize that the reason for suffering in my life can't be he doesn't care because he was my substitute and I was his joy set before him. Which leads to the last culminating part. When Jesus said to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? The point of that is that we have a God who suffers with us, sees beyond our suffering. He suffers for us. But they eventually took him off the cross, put him in a borrowed tomb. Three days later, he rose again. By the way, the entire Christian faith rests on that truth. The entire Christian faith rests on that truth that Jesus died, buried, rose again. So much that Paul said the whole thing's silly if Jesus is still dead. Like, we're wasting our time is what he said. But he said, because Jesus is alive, death has been swallowed up in victory. You see, the culmination to sin and evil and suffering in our world leads to death. And he says, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. Power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. When you and I, Run to God, the God of Christianity. We find a God swallowing up our suffering. Guys, this is important. I feel like I learned something this week. What does it mean that he swallows up our suffering? I read this in one of Tim Keller's books, and I loved it. He told a story that made this make sense to me. He said one night he had a dream that almost seemed real. You ever dream like that? Where you like dream a dream, you're like, oh my Lord, this is going on. 
And in this dream, in fact, it was so real to him that, that, that it made him sweat. It created fear and panic because in this dream, his entire family was brutally murdered. He dreamed this thing out to the very end and he woke up kind of like in a panic, almost like, is that real? Is that what happened? It was so real to him. When he realized that it was simply a dream, he couldn't wait for his family to wake up. Because he said, when they woke up and I saw their face, it was like I'd seen it for the first time. And he said, I could not keep from crying. He said, I could not keep from hugging them. I could not keep from embracing them, being excited in their presence in a way unlike I had ever been. Why? Because the experience of losing them, even though it was a dream, this dream, the experience of losing them was swallowed up in having them. There's the point. Heaven, listen close, is not compensation for all the hard stuff we might face here. It's not. But somehow if Jesus rose again from the dead, and he did, then the Bible says he is the first fruits among those who've said yes to Jesus who they will rise and experience this victory. And heaven isn't a compensation. Sorry you had to endure that. But somehow this victory that we have in the resurrected Christ swallows up everything we're experiencing here in a way that it will make that grander, better, more incredible. You see, the gospel response is simply this. The cross of Jesus assures me God is good and absolutely for me. The resurrection of Jesus assures me everything's going to be all right in the end, even if I don't understand it right now. Because the gospel might not explain everything about suffering and evil, but it does give the final answer. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and I... Today wasn't meant to make you feel better necessarily. Because some of you are going through the personal experience of suffering and you're like, man, I can't figure out how to put God in the middle of this. And you might be asking the question, does he love me? And I want to tell you that we have a God who suffers with us and even those he loves suffers. Some of you might have, but I'm wrestling, Dan, and I feel guilty like your friend, and I feel like I don't know. And he would rather this morning you wrestle with him than walk away from him. Well, where is God in the middle of this? What if the God who you're wrestling with is crying with you even in the middle of your suffering? Well, I don't understand because I can't see anything good coming out of it. And he says, I know. The knot hole's not very big, is it? But will you trust me? I'm looking from the top of the fence. What well, makes me mad? It did him too. It did him too. So mad that he did something about it and he suffered for you. He endured the suffering that you deserve and that I deserve so that we could have unhindered relationship with God. Well, how's it going to turn out? I'm not sure in the next several years, but I know the story of the resurrected Christ is it turns out pretty good in the end. 
In the meantime, there might be questions and there might be struggling. We have a God who suffers with us and suffers for us. And then he swallows up our suffering in victory. You guys will just give me one more minute. And then I'll pray and we're done. Okay? Some of you are sitting here like, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I'm glad you're here. I mean it. My goal today is to twist your arm. You're like, man, there's so much suffering and I can't justify it and I can't reconcile it and I just don't buy it. There is no God. I've written him off. I've walked away from him. I've subtracted him from the equation. And thanks for being so honest that you'll come to that conclusion. But can I ask you to be honest enough to follow that conclusion to its end? Can can I at least ask that? That writing God off and walking away really doesn't help. And it leads to some very perplexing questions because suffering exists. And I have no way to determine if it's just survival of the fittest or if it's just unjust, if there's absolutely no purpose, no design, no origin. And so if you've written God off, and I love the fact that you're here, but if you've written God off, can I ask you to do this and then I'll finish. Can I ask you to at least doubt your doubts long enough? Doubt your doubts to figure out where you're leaning the ladder of your life this morning. Because you're leaning the ladder of your life against a wall of faith somewhere. Somewhere. And you've got to ask yourself the question, is suffering unjust? If there's not a point and there's no God, then what's the point? I don't know. Then I'm really in a pickle. At least be honest enough that you'll say, where am I going to lean the ladder of my life in this question? So God, that's, that's the gist of the conversation. Some of my friends here are suffering. And I wish so bad, Lord, that Somehow in, in, in this whole deal that we could just remove that. Because we're looking through a knot hole and it doesn't really make sense. We're unsure of what's coming and we don't totally understand. And yet, thank you for being a God who suffers with us and suffered for us. And so I so believe that because you're alive, you're going to swallow up all our suffering I can't wait to stand in your presence. God, there's some of us in this room that think I'm talking to nobody and I'm glad they're here and I'm glad they've decided to pay us the highest compliment, pay me the highest compliment in letting us have this conversation. Pray that you'd use it in their life as well. I pray that they would know that they're safe to have those questions here. God, ultimately, we're glad that the gospel says that you made a way for us to have a relationship with God, salvation from our sins, and that's found in Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ buried, and Jesus Christ alive. Thanks. We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name.